every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flip the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. So welcome to the John Schultz podcast. We have a terrific guest today. His name is David Bars, and I've known him for a very long time, and I've gotten much sage advice from him on a lot of the things that I actually deal with in my life, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, a little bit about my friend David. He's founder and chief executive officer of Exout Capital. He's also the founder of DMB Holdings, a private family office. He was CEO of Third Avenue Management for 25 years, so he had a very long run there. My favorite thing about him is he's the executive producer for the Academy Award-winning, Grammy-winning, best documentary, Summer of Soul, which is about a legendary 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which celebrated African-American music and culture and promoted Black pride and unity. And that just obviously is streaming everywhere now, and we'll get into that. A conversation later. He's always been giving back his whole life. Uh, now he's working on the director and member of the executive committee for the City Parks Foundation. He's on the Big Apple chapter of YPO, which I also serve on. So welcome, David. I mean, I could go longer, but I, we, we got to get this podcast going. But welcome and thanks so much for coming. It's my true honor and privilege to be here. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, you know, your career spans a long time, you, you know, ultra successful person, had ups and downs throughout your career. But, you know, it's very interesting, you know, the market's down 800 points today, right? We're, you know, we're old enough to have been through a couple cycles, you and me. Um, so you've experienced these crashes, right? You've been around, you, you know what they feel like in your career, you know, especially even right, right when you're out of law school, uh, you, you had one as well. So. What do you feel the lessons you've learned and how should people think about what's going on right now? You know, the, I think the, the challenge for most folks who haven't been in, in the business that long is because this has been such a long run since the financial crisis of 2008 and nine, most uh, younger folks have not experienced this kind of market volatility and turmoil that hasn't you know, that's lasted a little bit of time. And it's clear this is going to be a little longer lasting. I think the lessons for me, having been through a number of these cycles and from starting out in the business from a position of being on the distress side of the market, because I, I, I entered the market as a distressed investor, uh, being a bankruptcy lawyer by background, is, is not oh, and what was that, just so the audience... Yeah, so I graduated law school in 1987. I clerked for a bankruptcy judge and then went to work for a law firm that represented just creditors in reorganizations and started working in September of 1987. And in October of 1987, the stock market crashed. So the next three years were the fallout from that event. That's an important lesson. Next three years, let's emphasize that, right? Stock market crashes in October, but for three years, you you had to deal with the aftermath of that. A lot of folks 
don't appreciate how long some of these periods can last. But what it, what it teaches you is not to panic, right? There are ways you can position yourself. Obviously, your, the value of your portfolio will, will move in line with the markets. And, and if you watch it on a day-to-day -day basis, it can be uncomfortable for folks. Uh, it could create moods. You know, you might find a guest who's in this kind of industry and the market's down 800 points. He doesn't want to talk to John. Like, I don't want to do this podcast. Can I'm, we hang I'm up glad right you actually- yeah? I mean, you started off with like bad news. You want to bring me down right at the beginning. But <laughs> the reality is as a, as in a, someone who's been through a number of these, you just don't panic and you just recognize that you got to position yourself for these periods. And, and, and sometimes when there is blood on the streets, it's when the best opportunities present themselves. So over my career, that has been one of the stalwarts of, of my success has been when these market, market environments present themselves, it's, it's not a time to panic. It's actually a time to be thoughtful and put into position uh, opportunities that where the pricing might not always be available. And a lot right. of this is always about price, price, what we call price discovery, right? True price discovery. And you know, in, it, what I love about your sort of career, you sort of follow, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but even with Xout, like your whole premise is taking out people or companies that don't change and like saying you're out, right? And, and you're, you're always looking at who's making those moves, especially in these environments. But okay, so you, but you did that for three years. And then uh, when did Third Avenue uh, appear in your life? Yeah, so so um, representing creditors, it, there was a, a robust market that got created in distressed securities in the early 90s. And I, I ended up fashioning myself as, as an attorney to that community, um, mostly populated by hedge funds. In fact, most Wall Street firms did not have trading desks yet set up to, to transact in distressed securities because it was all off, off market or over the counter market transactions, primarily between banks who own loans and hedge funds who had capital to invest in those loans. And ultimately uh, was offered a position to join one of the deans of that, of that investing community, a gentleman named Marty Whitman, who had written a number of books about distressed investing, and, and I went to work for him and, and built the firm from scratch. He had had a broker-dealer operation, which he operated under the name MJ Whitman, but we created an asset management franchise. Such clever fellows were we that our offices were located on Third Avenue in Manhattan that we branded and named our firm Third Avenue Management. Uh, and, and from scratch, we able, was able to grow that, that organization to a $31 billion asset management franchise at its peak, just as the financial crisis came upon us in the fall of 2008. Wow. So there you go. It's 2008. You got this, you know, gigantic, not only responsibility, but, you know, assets under management. And you, you said in another interview that your role as a mutual fund manager until 2008 and the financial crisis happened, you know, was good. And then it just, your role changed. How did it, first of all, how did it change? And then how did it change you? Because, you know, as much as we, you know, go through this, like if you don't figure out what the learning moment is or 
where this takes you, it's sort of for naught. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question to to answer in in just the time we have for this podcast. But I would tell you that the fragility of business really comes into clear focus when there are um, these kinds of events. So your first question was how to how did it what lessons did I learn? You learn to be patient and you learn to be uh, thoughtful in the way in which you protect yourself and take advantage of opportunities. But when it, when it happens, it's also um, a recognition of, you know, creating a business takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a little bit of luck, but the business could disappear overnight. And you, you, you're just, it's fascinating um, to have that kind of experience. So our assets, as I said, 31 billion in September of 2008, in February of 2009, 10 billion. So in six months, I uh, wiped out two thirds of, well, I didn't, but the market did, wiped out two thirds of the, of the assets we had under management, which is the standard test by which you, you yeah. measure all things in the asset management business performance and obviously AUM, uh, but six months to have two thirds of it uh, disappear is quite a, a shocking event. And, um, and so how did that change me? It changed me by recognizing how fragile business is and how important it is when those kinds of environments to occur, ultimately, some are out of your control, some are in your control, but your, your only thing you're left with is your reputation, right? So um, we had already achieved, you know, unfound, unbelievable success. And by the way, along the way, I also monetized the business because we sold a good chunk of it, a majority of it, in fact, to a publicly traded asset management business. So there was a monetization event along the way before that, that event. And 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 then your reputation is really all that matters because you're you are responsible you're a fiduciary for other people's money and you want to be able to do your best to protect that and and be completely transparent about risks that are that are being taken so so that was a that was another takeaway right how important your reputation is when you um when you have an event like that occur well, because it's easy when things are going good, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, that's what, and that's why things take so long to actually learn these lessons because, you know, things don't happen overnight, right? They take time. Yeah. I mean, look, in today's world, let's just talk about today since you brought it up at the start. Target announced their earnings yesterday. Brian Cornell is viewed as one of the top retail CEOs in this marketplace, right? Um, yeah. Sort of well thought of everyone considers him maybe one of the best, if not the best retail CEO, they missed. They have unanticipated, as he said it, unanticipated costs of what could be a billion dollars just in transportation for merchandise that they, they distribute and sell. The market slaughtered him for that. He lost 25% of the value of the stock in one morning so far, right? Is that, does that, um, feel fair and right, you know, should the market have had um, none of that pr 
priced in previously, um, or is it even fair to take 25% of the market cap of that company out for just that one thing? Again, how do you think Brian Cornell feels right now? I'm sure he's not happy about it, and I'm sure he's not happy about the, the way the market's reacted, but at the end of the day, what he's gonna be judged for is how transparent and clear he is to the market about what these challenges are and, and how he's going to contend with them on a go forward basis to build back. You know, we're not talking about shoppers, we're talking about shareholders, owners, right? And so it's an interesting dynamic that people are facing all day, every day. And well, I, listen, just, I, I just had my own experience with it. Yeah, he owned it, which I guess what you're saying, because I'm going back to circle back to saying you went from 31 to 10. I mean, you had to own it. I mean, part of having relationships is owning what you are. So, uh, you know, I thought he did. And is that sort of the tact you took? I mean, because you described the next seven years after the crisis, right, that you went through was torture. You, you've said that many occasions. Yes. And why did you stick it out? I mean, not many people would. It's a good question. Um, again, a lot of what occurred out of the financial crisis was some of the same opportunities that I, I mentioned earlier. There were, there was blood on the streets, right? There were a number of companies, good companies, unfortunately, that were improperly financed or too leveraged to sustain their, their balance sheets. And, and as a result, went into financial distress. And those opportunities um, were, rampant. It was almost, I said it, I, I've also said at that time, it was like shooting fish in the barrel. Uh, if you invested in, in the appropriate fulcrum security, being that security in the capital structure that was going to participate in a company's reorganization. So generally senior debt or debt with collateral uh, that you could own at discounts to par, right? That opportunity was wildly available if you had capital. The problem was raising capital at a time so when- So it's not there when you need- Right, exactly. It's, it's but, I did, but I did launch a fund in the summer of, of 2009, actually uh, boldly went on CNBC in, and announced the launch of a, of a credit fund, which was something we hadn't done at Third Avenue and, and, and described that opportunity. And it became- uh, a place for our investors to to go and and give us um, the ability to to take advantage of that marketplace. The torture was with the other side of our business. The other side of our business was an ATM machine, primarily invested in publicly traded equity securities, global, and um, and had daily liquidity. So investors had. Uh, can take their money out every day, any day they wanted to, and most did. And that continued for for an extended period of time. I, I've been quoted as saying seven years. It, it now feels like seven years uh, until I left the firm. It was it was a real challenge. And, and I think that the way I changed um, was not the same as the way the portfolio managers who were responsible for some of these funds. Let's let's be clear. I was not making investment decisions for each and every portfolio, right? I was managing the people who were making investment decisions. 
on me was the hiring of those people, right? It was my decision to put these people in the seats, but they weren't changing and evolving in part because of the, the discipline nature in which they were trained to invest. And that became uh, the, the torture, right? The conflict of un, in unwillingness to change when the environment had drastically changed created uh, a real conflict. And so ultimately, uh, performance speaks for itself and investors made the decision that they have a right to make, which is to walk, right? And so the firm just continued to deteriorate and, um, and ultimately its demise is now a, a part of history. It's, it's no longer uh, the firm that it was. Right, so, so, you know, I, know, I happen to know you personally. I know, you know, you're, you're a terrific guy that's always thinking and, and helping people. So here you are, the top, and then boom, right? Like, like, like you said, mostly not in your control. You know, and, and you were there to, to like 25 years. It's, this is not a little amount of time. So how did you psychologically get through that moment? Uh, with a lot of uh, soul searching <laughs> and, uh, and, and coaching and, and, and really uh, the way we know each other is through YPO. Uh, for those who don't know and appreciate YPO, it's, uh, it's an organization that has a lot of uh, benefits, but one of the most significant benefits is what we call forum, where you have an opportunity to in effect become part of a group like it's your own private board of directors. And in our case, eight, eight other individuals who were a member of my forum became my private board of directors, if you will, my, my almost my, my advisory committee. So almost, and, and religiously, like monthly. And so everyone knows these are other CEOs at other companies in all different industries coming at things in all different perspectives. Right. And, um, and having that, that asset, you know, that ability to consult with in, in the most confidential and intimate way with your deepest fears and your deepest desires and your deepest um, uh, accolades, right? It's a, it works both ways. You don't just share when things are going great, you share when things are going poorly to have that and, and to be able to use that as a, a sounding board for decisions that ultimately I had to make uh, was a was really one of the phenomenal ways in which I got through it, and and I would tell you that that was hugely relied upon, and I think that's what makes Forum such a special thing. Ultimately, I, you know, made the decision to to end up to leaving the organization in, in the end of 2015. So my my 25 years was was enough, and it I I left the the organization to be run by others because that was the right decision to be made at that time. And that was something that, again, through consultation with folks really became the, the, the proper path. Good. And, you know, what I just heard was vulnerability and realizing that, you know, asking for help and being helped is a, is a, a tremendous asset in our lives. And, you know, I think, most people don't, you know, some people look at that as a weakness. I, I, I look at it as your biggest strength and that's why you are who you are. 
So, okay. So that happened. You, you made your decision hard, man, hard, long. That's a long time to be anywhere. And obviously, uh, you know, you made that decision. So, so what, so then I'm sure you were, you know, roaming around, you'll tell us, but what, what was the aha moment behind the new thing that you're doing, which is Excel capital, you know, the, the index investing platform that you created, what made you even want to get back into it? Right. I mean, here you are, you went through all that, whatever pain, you know, and, and, you know, you realize what you did want to do and didn't want to do what made you sort of get back in. So um, as part of my exit from the organization, I was uh, prohibited from working in the industry for a couple of years. I had to Got sign it. a non-compete, take a garden leave. But once that garden leave expired, there were three insights that I had developed that were kind of just poking at me that I wanted to address if I, once I made the decision to get back involved in the business. So insight number one was, what I had seen occur since the financial crisis was a growth and a continued acceleration of growth of investors investing in passive index strategies. I ran a firm that was actively managed. We were selecting individual securities, concentrating in those securities on the theory that our approach of, of, of being active was going to outperform the market whatever benchmark we used to, to measure that against. And we consistently failed. So I was watching and learning how passive strategies just continued to trounce active managers. And I wanted to be a part of that, that space. The second insight was, boy, these index passive funds are phenomenal vehicles, but they're flawed, fundamentally flawed, because they buy everything in an index. So it's, it's indiscriminate. And once they've established what that index is, whether it's the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 or the MSCI All World, it doesn't really matter. There are hundreds of securities inside those indices. They buy them all. And, and that's a flaw because not every company in those indices is a good company or a company you want to own. And insight number three is, you know, after watching my team fail to pick winners for so long, I came to the realization that it might actually be easier to simply exclude losers. Let's flip the entire investment paradigm on its head. Everyone on Wall Street is trained to pick winners. I'm going to flip that. Let's turn it into just exclude the losers. And if you think about it, John, like you played sports as a kid, I assume, right? Yeah. You would line up with your buddies and it was time to pick a team, five-on-five five basketball, whatever it might have been. And, um, you know, you kind of knew who maybe the best player was, but pretty much everyone knew who the worst player was, and no one was selecting that worst yeah, player. Yeah, it was my scariest moment that I wouldn't get picked. Every, every time that happened, I was like, it was like a bad nightmare. So, you know, it's like, I, and I get it, but it was always easier to figure that out, you know? And, yep. and, um, and so if you, if you just apply that simple sort of contract, it's true in a lot of things, but in investing in securities, it's definitely so much easier to identify what the bad companies are and so much harder to figure out what the good ones. So I took those three insights together and I created a methodology that's based on fundamental financial information. So we really want to know what companies are reporting publicly each and every quarter and measure that financial performance. 
But those fundamental metrics that we use to measure are merely established to identify the bad companies. So you started off by, by introducing XOUT to the audience. I can, I can make it really simple for everyone. We take seven fundamental metrics, highlight a couple, revenue growth. How is a company actually growing its revenue? How is a company um, using its resources to buy back its stock? How is a company spending money on its research and development for the future? So we weed out from the, in the first case here for XOUT's first exchange traded fund, we weed out the 250 companies that perform the worst on those metrics. And there are four others that we use, but to simplify this, just by getting those fundamental scores each and every quarter, it tells us about companies that are failing to adapt to the ever-changing environment. And we believe the environment is ever-changing. It's never static. And so- even, I think it's even going faster than it ever has before. Actually. It's true. And, and look, Moore's law applies in the sense that computing power is, is growing at an exponential rate. And when quantum computing becomes the norm, which is not too far away, it'll become even faster. And those, those, the application of those processes is not even yet fully appreciated by our brains. And so I think the people who are in the technology field understand this. They're striving to be there first and foremost. Like Microsoft can't stop talking about quantum computing and what it's going to mean to their business down the road. But most people don't pay attention to it because they're too busy focusing on what interest rates are going to do or whether we're going to be in inflation for an extended period of time or whether a recession is going to come. And, and that noise permeates the market and drives market sentiment. But the companies that are really thinking about the future aren't necessarily as focused on those issues as they are about how are we going to improve what we do better, faster, cheaper, and, and achieve even greater success than they've already achieved. And I think that gets lost. And, and that risk of technological change is the risk that we're trying to address with XOUT. And we think it's easier to address that risk to, to basically take advantage of it by just eliminating losers or in our parlance, Xing them out. And, and what's interesting, you know, I loved your three things you figured out over 25 years, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, and, and now you're trying to solve them in your next round of, of what you're gonna do. And you still won't know if that's gonna work either, which just shows how pivoting and, you know, having a long-term goal, not being afraid to change is what's so important. You're proving that. And a kudos to doing this. It's great that you're uh, kicking back in and, you know, trying to really figure out what you learned from your, your career to, to improve. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing that grow. I think, you know, it's exciting to, I mean, you know, having your little X out on an ET, I guess it's an ETF, right? So yes. that's sort of cool, right? So you actually, that's not probably so easy to, to get done either. So, so no, 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 that's right? a whole nother podcast is uh, how, exactly. how an, an outsider like myself enters well, into the ETF ecosystem and, and attempts to start a business from scratch and the, uh, 
the barriers that are in place to prevent something like that happening are, are fairly significant. So over, achieving just the success of getting it launched was a milestone. Having you know over 100 million in assets under management is a, is a, is a major milestone. Getting to the billion dollar level is my next goal, and and if I achieve it, um, will be a tremendous milestone. So that's, uh, but that's I'm what hoping, I'm striving for. Good, I'm hoping you do. But but the the cool thing is, is you know, you're trying to solve a salute, you know, a problem that you, you just didn't want to let go, and you're so much in belief of it, you're getting it done. So that's good. So now let's go to something like sort of off financial topic, but I, I just think the coolest thing ever. And it, it actually ruins the theory of, of, you know, myth of overnight success, which is, you know, but we'll still talk about it, but it, you know, it's unbelievable. And it, it, you'll, you'll probably give us reasons why it probably will never happen again and never happens. It's this somersault. I mean, here you are, obviously, you know, always looking for good opportunities and this thing comes and how, why the hell do you even do it? Uh, and, you know, to do it and then actually win, you know, a, 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 an Academy Award. And, you know, I'd love to hear what it was like to be at the Academy Awards. So, so start, give, give us a little, you know, background info on this. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of um, folks who are on Wall Street get uh, propositioned or solicited for investment in theatrical endeavors, whether it's a movie or a Broadway show or 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 podcasts even, right? This happens all the time, and and so it, over time, I would be prospected, and it was always sort of like a fun thing to want to do because it's, you know, theoretically cool to be you know associated. Well, it's fun. With, it's it's right? creative. It's entertaining. Entertaining, yeah. right? And I'm a, a very good friend. In fact, my my best man at my wedding and one of my oldest friends had been in the industry since uh, he graduated from college. And, and every time I'd get a, a prospect, you know, I'd send it to him, what should I do? He goes, uh, throw it in the trash can. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, do you want to lose money? Or are you, you're, I, cause I thought you're in the business of making money. So if you want to lose money, invest in it, but it'll be a very expensive show to the premiere, uh, take it to the premiere. So I, I consistently listened to him and save myself a lot of money because I think he was virtually 100% correct on every one of his uh, advice. Like it wasn't like he said to me, uh, uh, "Pass on Hamilton," you know. Right, and, right, right, right. Right. These were not. Um, these were not because uh, obviously Hamilton goes to the lucky people, the people who won the lottery. So he finally comes to me one day and and he says, "I have a film, a documentary film I want to make. I need help. I need." I need uh, money. And I said, okay, done. What's it about? Uh, because here it was like for all this time, I've been waiting to, uh, to do this. And he tells me it's about this, as you introduced, introduced at the beginning, a, a music festival that took place in Harlem in 1969 uh, for a black audience with mostly black performers. And no one knew about this. And what intrigued me, not about the idea, not just that it came from a, a trusted friend, but was I ch actually, you you uh, missed my my proper title for City Parks Foundation. I'm actually the chairman. Okay. And, um, and as the chairman of the organization, one of my responsibilities is summer stage in New York. For those of the listeners who don't know about that, it's we, we put on 
free shows and ticketed shows, but at venues throughout the city, the five boroughs in New York. And in one venue we use is in Harlem and in, in Marcus Garvey Park. And this is exactly the location where this music festival took place in 1969, which was a free wow. show. So the, you know, the, this was just dumb luck, right? I mean, he comes to me with this thing and I'm like, what are you talking about? This is, this is my thing. I do this today, right? I put on free shows today. So I went and, and signed up and became um, his initial investor. And then he raised some money from some other family offices. And, and away we went in 2018, late 2018, early 2019. We started production. The first thing we had to do was hire a director. We hired Questlove, the drummer for The Roots and, and band leader for the Jimmy Fallon show. He had never directed a film before, but he had been uh, well known for his music knowledge and and was also fascinated that there was this music festival he did not know about and and we started the process of taking the tape from these six summer show, six days over the summer these aggregated 45 hours of tape and, and editing it down to what could be a music documentary I think what what changed the whole paradigm it would have been, you know, a great movie and a really cool documentary about musical performances and then the really how the music transformed itself over the summer. It went from gospel to rhythm and blues to um, Motown. Stevie Wonder was sort of a transitional thing. He was 19 at the time, but he started playing funkier stuff. And wow. then Sly and the Family Stone, who were rock and roll, uh, really, and and were the only performers who performed that summer, both at the Harlem Cultural Festival and Woodstock, right? And so what, what changed was in the midst of the production, which was primarily around, you know, digi digitally recording the tape and then also just editing it down and selecting the right, the right performances, was that two things happened. COVID came and February, March of, 2019, of 2020, and George Floyd was killed. And when George Floyd was killed, the, the dialogue in the, really in the country, it, not that it hadn't already occurred, but it really obviously melted up and, and, in, and in some places exploded, right? There were riots going on. Um, even New York had its own sets of issues. And, and for us, it became almost, um, an obligation to change the arc of the movie to reflect that some of the challenges that had gone on in 1969 still permeated our society today. And that story needed to be told because ultimately one of the messages that we tried to give to everybody about this film was, it was a bit of an erasure of, of Black culture and, and Black history. Why, was, why is Woodstock so well known? Why are there dozens of movies about Woodstock, books written, performances told over and over again, you know, re-shown in many places. And here you had arguably the equivalent talent, just Black talent, um, not getting any of the same recognition and, and basically having those performances buried in somebody's basement for 50 years. So the erasure of that, of that history had to be told and explained. And that was one of the goals of the film. And that's why the film achieved the critical acclaim 
that it got. It wasn't just about these musical performances, which in and of themselves, you know, in, in, in certain instances, I still get teary eyed. I've watched the movie a thousand times. I, I tear up when I watch it because you watch Nina Simone perform and to the audience who, with whom she's performing, you go rewatch this movie. And for those of you who haven't watched it, watch it and rec remember these words. You will have to become emotionally connected to that performance because of what she's doing. The trailer gives you a little bit of that introduction and sort of teases you a little bit with what she's doing um, because we use her in the trailer. But if you watch her full performance, it's a miracle that a riot didn't begin at that moment, that she didn't incite people to storm the Capitol, you know, liking it to what happened on January 6th of 2021, right? It's, it's, it's a testament to how beautiful the whole festival was and how meaningful it was to the community of Harlem and to black people in total. So that story is why it won all the awards it won. And I was just fortunate to be a part of the process, but I was influential when the event occurred because I can remember the day I picked up the phone and called my buddy who was who was who brought me the film and said, man, this is an opportunity for us to to tell a very different story here. And 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 that's what we did. And we we used COVID to because we were shut down in our production to do more archival research. And one of the most interesting things we found was during one of those six performances, it was the day we landed, the, the um, NASA landed uh, the moon shuttle, July of 1969. And the whole country was sort of overwhelmed with that news. First time landing on the moon, big deal. We found a clip of Walter Cronkite announcing this as breaking news, you know, it went across your television. And he was choked up about it. CBS had sent a reporter to the Harlem Cultural Festival to interview people in the, in the crowd. And he found this young black man who, and he said, hey, um, you know, we landed on the moon, what do you think? And the young black man is like, who cares about landing on the moon? We need money for education. We need money for our kids. There's a lot of poverty here in Harlem. I don't care about landing on the moon. They should be spending money on us. Now, isn't that perspective? Wow. Because, right, you know, we wouldn't have found that if we weren't in COVID. Like it was just gave us more time to do things. And we found this, this little snippet of a news clip. And it's the message is very powerful. So that, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but it's the, the fortuitousness of, of uh, all these events occurring just kind of gave me the sense that we were going to be more than just a, you know, a documentary. And by the way, 99.9% .9 of documentaries produced lose money. Wow. Well, listen, I mean, I can feel your passion and what a great story and great movie and must have been such a, like a great learning process, right? First of all, you're learning sort of a new trade craft, right? With the entertainment world, but like the, the whole like archival looking things up, you know, like I like ancestry.com. Like I love like you learn all these things like that we take for granted or that we don't know. And it's powerful. And, and uh, it's funny also like you, all these little silver linings, like COVID like made it better. Like there is, I mean, COVID's the worst thing that could have ever happened. I can't believe it did, you know, 
it's a tragedy, but like, it's nice that people are at least starting to see some silver linings for what, you know, happened that, could, you know, was, was good. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you know, obviously there were certain things that got challenged. Like we wanted to interview Mavis Staples was one of the performers. We wanted to interview her and she couldn't travel. She's in her, right. her, her eighties. She didn't want to travel. So we, we wanted to come visit her in Chicago and, and interview her. She wouldn't let anyone come visit her because she was quarantining and not right not afraid to get COVID. Yep. So we send her uh, an iPad, you know, with a, yep. a camera on it. And we're going to ask you these questions and we'll do it by just the way you and I are talking now in a Zoom fashion. And <laughs> the iPod arrives at her, uh, iPad arrives at her apartment and, and we, we get all set up and she's like, no, I don't like the way my hair looks. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to do an on-camera thing. So her, her interview is only voice, right? You so could have shown her how to use the filters, right? So like for those of you, the inside filters. joke on this is uh, she just didn't like her hair that day. And that's why she wouldn't let us film her. Good but for um, her. At least she knows what she wants. But yes, it was, but so there were, it wasn't all like COVID wasn't because normally we would have had her. Well, listen, and there's the pros and cons and everything, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Before, before COVID, we got the fifth dimension in. So Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Who are, who are uh, the lead performers of fifth dimension and, and a couple they're okay. married. They hadn't seen themselves perform in 50 years. So they're, we're showing them their tape of their performance for the first time Oh and we're God. filming that. And if you watch, you'll That's see so their cool. eyes. It's so their, cool. Right. Their eyes just lit up. So it was, we missed out on doing that with the other performers who are still alive. All right. Well, listen, life doesn't stop yet. Maybe you got to do a little, you know, after the movie movie, something, something like that. Get Do, do some more creative yeah, stuff. They call those, I'll come they with call you. I love, I'd love to hang out and watch that. They but call before, those sequels. Sequel. It doesn't even have to be one. So anyway, to finish, because, you know, I don't want to, spend your whole day here, even though I'd love to, because your stories are fascinating. How is it going to the Academy Awards? So it's a great, uh, it's a great thing to do if you haven't done it. You know, it, it's- well, I mean, no, the, you can go, but how do, how's it? How well, it, you really can't go. Getting a ticket to the Academy Awards is like really? the thing in the world. First of all, okay. there's no, there's no secondary market. This isn't like going to the Super Bowl where there's a price for everything. You can right, buy right, a Super Bowl. Right, right, right. You cannot sell your Academy Award ticket <laughs> and you only like get Willy Wonka and the golden ticket, right? Yeah, you only get one if you're a nominee. So you yeah. you cannot, you can't get a ticket. So going to it is, it's a little bit of a um, narcissistic love fest, right? Because it's the people who are there are all the ones who are being uh, nominated. And then there's those who are connected to the film, like I was, right. you know, yeah. an executive producer, not an actual producer yeah. or director, right? right. And, and so- your, your audience is capped and limited. Um, it's really a made for TV thing. And, and, and so they end up just having a love fest about themselves. And the, and I think for them, because the, the Academy is membered by all of the people, right? It's the producers, directors, and actors who make up the industry and they're the ones voting for the winner. Right. And, right. and so, um, so they're they're just voting on themselves, and and it's a little bit of a, as I said, a, a narcissistic love fest. Um, and and for me, because I was there for our own endeavor, yeah, um, the experience was fun, and and the after parties were a blast, but but the event was tarnished, and it was tarnished because. 
one uh, announcer, a, com a comedian named Chris Rock, decided to make a, a joke that upset another one of the actors who decided to unscriptedly come up on stage and slap the guy in the face and 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 then curse him out, which you didn't hear because it got blinked out by the television. The oh my god, you were you know, this is happening while our award is being announced, right? So your award? Wait yeah, a minute. So, so this it is a this, your this award. Is, yeah, this that is was getting Jeopardy. announced. I didn't it's, even know that. Yeah, this is a Jeopardy question for you know from years. Oh from my years. What, god! What award wasn't being announced when um, when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? So, you know the the spoiling of that moment for us. Now I'm I'm going to be a little self centered about it, right? This was our moment. We worked for years to get this. My friend, who was the lead producer worked for 30 years of his career to get to this point. He had never been nominated nominated for a, an Academy Award. Here he is, he's not, not just nominated, but he wins and, and he goes up on stage and, and he can't even think straight because of what just happened. Like everybody was- Oh my God. Was, you know, turned upside down. So, so this, the, just the selfishness of that moment for these people just made me crazy. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, instead of, I don't know if you did you see what happened at the Dave Chappelle show? Yes. So yes. some guy came up on stage, yeah. right? Yeah. And they took that guy backstage and what they do to him, they beat the crap out of him. And, and, uh, and he's been in jail since, um, what happened to Will Smith? He was told to sit down and relax. Right. And then 15 minutes later was called up on stage and accepted his own award. And they gave him a standing, uh, you know, applause. I was in the hallway watching it on TV because I came downstairs to celebrate. Right. And I was the only guy who booed. So all these people looking at me, who's that guy booing? I'm booing because I can't believe that this was allowed to occur. And, and so my perspective on this as an outsider was they're just so, so all self-absorbed that they lost complete perspective of what had just happened. And what makes that even worse is, I don't know if you saw the New York Post yesterday reported that Chris Rock is being considered to be the MC of next, next year's Oscars. So instead of recognizing that maybe there were some improprieties on both parties' parts, right? They're going to award the guy with an opportunity to possibly host. Now, whether he agrees to do it or not is, uh, remains to be seen, but Hollywood is just self-inflicting more wounds upon itself. And, and that's why I'm one and done with this project. It was like, how can I achieve better success I don't think I can. I know I can't. And and so this was fun and interesting. Right, but what I like about it, because even though I said, like for you, you're right. They're, the myth that we talk about in this show is there. But like you said, it's 30 years of that guy's career, right? And then regardless of what happened, this was his moment. And it's amazing. And I love how he guided you throughout the whole, not do this, don't do this. Because you, you know, you trusted him to actually jump into something that became real. So really, you know, you took a long time to get to this point, even though you're one and done, you know, you could have been 15 with, with the last one was good. Right. But this guy helped you. Listen, yeah, yeah. I want to thank you. Uh, so interesting and fascinating, you know, all the different things you're doing and that you keep going and you're a good person. You help a lot of people. You're going to help a lot of people on my show. Uh, you know, so I appreciate that. And I can't tell you how much uh, I'm happy that you did this. 
Is there anything people you want to know about you, where to find you, you know, maybe something about your X out? I don't know, whatever you're allowed to say or not say. No, uh, I, but uh, you know, look, X out is uh, xoutcapital.com is our website and, and uh, follow me on LinkedIn uh, because I, I'll, I'll report on not just um, developments with X out, but also developments with Summer of Soul, which, which Good. continues to um, to be streamed on Hulu. It's streamed on Hulu if you okay, want to watch good. it. And, streamed on Hulu. And awesome. um, we're going to do a screening, a free screening in Harlem on June 17th, uh, which is, we wanted to do it on Juneteenth, but that's a, a Sunday and the park uh, is limiting on what permits it gives out on Sunday. So in Harlem, <clears throat> it will be a free screening of the film on June 17th and it, it's a it's it's a great opportunity not just to watch the film but to watch the community watch the film many of whom still do not know of its existence yes yeah, that's terrific well David thank you I appreciate you being on the show it's my pleasure and continued congratulations on your success with the podcast thank and you unfortunately I'll take your listener views down but I think you'll, your <laughs> other you guests are going to keep bringing you up Thank you, bud. Thank you.